0: Welcome to the business of psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Are you stuck in private practice paralysis? We've all been there. Beat the overwhelm, imposter syndrome, and insecurity by creating a business plan that gives you confidence. This summer, I'm excited to bring you our free 50-minute training so you can take your first step to a fulfilling, financially rewarding and enjoyable practice. Whether you're looking to start your independent practice in September or you've decided it's time for a major overhaul in the way you run your existing practice, choose your date and book your space on the free training at psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash webinar. I'll see you there. Today, I'm recording a different type of podcast. Today, it's not about strategy, it's not about a process, it's not about tips. And that's because I really can't give you any when it comes to this question. Today, we're talking about something really personal. We're talking about the decision that many of us grapple with here in the UK about when to leave the NHS. And for any of our international listeners, The NHS is our national health service. It's an institution that we all love, we all value. It's the institution that provides free healthcare at the point of need. Something that most of us are really committed to and very fully believe in 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 the mental health space. However, the NHS is not an easy employer and There have been a lot of difficulties. I think that's probably a massive understatement over the past decade uh, and probably before that. That's just my experience um, in providing the kind of mental health services that we want people to to be receiving through the NHS. So this podcast will be relevant for anybody considering leaving employment, considering reducing their hours or who just feels a bit paralysed by that question. So what I'm not going to be doing today is giving you a a tick sheet or a process that you can follow to help you make that choice. Of course I can't do that. But what I am going to do is share some of my personal experiences. I'll share the the reasoning behind uh, my decision to leave the NHS. And then I'm also going to to share with you the wisdom of 47 other psychologists who answered this question for me um, in one of our Private practice groups, uh, which is called UK Psychologists in Private Practice. If you're not in it, you should be in it. It's a brilliant group. Um, And I asked in there how people knew it was the right time to leave the NHS because I know this is something that so many of my listeners um, struggle with and. So many people that are considering jumping into psychology business school or joining the Do Morton Therapy membership talk to me about this dilemma. So I thought I'd really like to create a podcast which doesn't give you the answers, but lets you in on the reasoning um, of people who have made that decision so that it can maybe help you to feel a little bit more supported, a little bit less alone with that big decision that you're grappling with. But before we get started, I also want to share with you some, some more personal stuff from me um, that actually prompted me to start thinking about this. So those of you who have eagle eyes or who um, are involved in psychology business school or the Do Modern Therapy membership might have noticed that my camera has been moving slowly <laughs> um, further up. So you can see less and less of my body recently <laughs> in uh, in social media videos or in Zoom trainings that I do in psychology business school. And the reason for that is that I am expecting my third child. Um, I'm very pleased to announce that. I'm. By the time this goes out, I should be around 21 weeks, I think, maybe 22. Uh, and as it's my third child, I do have quite a sizable baby bump. <laughs> so I have been making efforts to hide that. I never find pregnancy very easy. And that's a whole topic for another podcast that I certainly will be making. I might even be writing a book on. Um, but I have not felt well. And, um, and there have been real challenges. But I'm now feeling pretty good. And I want to use this time to help other people that might be in a position of going through a big life transition and wondering what on earth that means for their career. So my story uh, in terms of why I left the NHS is all about my family and it's all about my children. So it seemed like a really relevant time to share this with you. So I guess I left the NHS officially, gosh nearly yeah, it must be just over four years ago now, maybe five. <laughs> I don't know, baby brain, not brilliant at, uh, at maths, F- four or five years ago. And it was because my daughter had just started at nursery. I'd gone back into a, a locum role in an NHS team. We're a military family, so I already knew that I couldn't go back into uh, a role within a, a permanent team. And that made me really sad because I had loved the role that I had in Tower Hamlet. I worked in the Learning Disability Service there, and had a really challenging role, but one that I would have loved to have done for a lot longer. Um, but unfortunately, I knew that as a military family, we were likely to be moving. Um, so I, I kind of knew that that was probably going to be happening around my daughter's first birthday, maybe the 18 month mark. So I took a short-term locum contract with a local team, I won't name which one, um, and I was really keen to get back into the NHS. I'd really missed it while I'd been on maternity leave. I never really saw my career going in any other direction. I'd been incredibly grateful to get onto training as, um, as a clinical psychologist for, for anyone who maybe took a different route or might be international listening to this, the NHS fund our training as clinical psychologists and we're extremely privileged in that position compared to other mental health professionals like counselling psychologists, people who do psychotherapy courses. You know, they usually have to self-fund them. So I was aware of how lucky I'd been to get my doctorate paid for by the NHS. But also, ideologically, I'd, I'd grown up really loving the values of a free healthcare, free at the point of need, was something that was very important to me. And the client groups that I'd worked with, you know, specialising in learning disability, were not people that were ever going to be able to directly pay for those services. So, In a way, I really haven't ever imagined independent practice being part of my career. I'd imagined a few things maybe like research, maybe working for a charity at some point, maybe working for a university, but I'd never imagined that I would give up working in the NHS altogether. It just wasn't part of my thinking. So I took this job in a locum service, and I really enjoyed uh, a lot of aspects of the role. Unfortunately, my daughter did not get on well with nursery. Um, she just was ill all the time. Every bug was destined to make her, um, you know, unwell for, for at least a week. So I really struggled to ever be at my NHS job, um, which for anyone listening to this who's ever been in that position I was solo parenting my husband was deployed he's in the navy and I had no friends or family anywhere near me so it was me you know I had to be the one who hot-footed it down to the nursery every time she got a temperature I had to be the one that took all the time off work until she was ready to go back to nursery I was the one doing all of the sleepless nights um and, you know, the the buck stopped with me. So it was really difficult on lots of practical levels, really difficult because I knew I was letting my team down. And as much as lovely friends would try and say to me, you know, oh, I'm sure you're still doing a really good job and they really value you. And they were lovely to me about it, I should say. Um, my manager was so kind and so accommodating and they helped me with every kind of flexibility that they could extend to me but the fact was I was just not able to do the job in the time I was able to be there Um, and there was just a reality to that fact it was a big job too big for a locum I have to say and you know I would have I would have campaigned for a lot more psychology provision in that service. But the fact was I wasn't even able to to give it what the job description required. So for all of those reasons, trying to keep it up was really eroding my self-esteem. It was making me feel like a bad person. It was certainly making me feel like I couldn't live my values. I wasn't being the psychologist I wanted to be. I wasn't being the mum that I wanted to be either. Um, because I was frequently, you know, making those borderline decisions. you like, well, she's still a bit poorly, but can I give her some cow and send her in? Not proud of that, but it happened. And I know <laughs> any of you who are a solo or single parents will relate to that feeling um, where you're just torn in a million and one directions. To add to this context, I was pregnant at the time with my second child, with my little boy. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, pregnancy is difficult for me. It's, it's difficult for me physically, it's difficult for me psychologically. and I started to feel quite vulnerable. So I did a couple of things. I enrolled on a mindfulness course with Banger University and I really recommend that. Hugely recommend that. If you are pregnant right now um, or going through any life transition and you are struggling um, psychologically, doing a structured mindfulness program, can be really transformative and what it did for me was it it forced me to spend some time with my mind it forced me to spend some time with my values and it enabled me to see that I wasn't living them and that actually there might be a, a different path that would allow me to do more of what felt like my calling and while still being the parent that I wanted to be Because I'd I'd had these blinkers on for my whole career and I see this when I talk to people who are considering leaving the NHS all the time. I talk to people who are considering psychology business school, but it feels like it's stepping into the dark side or giving up on something that they've been really passionate about. It starts to feel really black and white. And I very much had that viewpoint where it felt like, you know, if I step into um, private practice. I prefer the term independent practice now, but at the time in my head it was private practice. Then it's going to be all about you know only helping wealthy people. Um, it's it's going to be all about trying to make money for myself. It it felt like the selfish route, which I now think is crazy. I do not share that opinion now, but I'm just letting you in on where my head was at the time. But it also felt like it might be the only thing I could do that would allow my daughter to get more sleep. I'd I'd kind of come to this realization that she was a child that needed more sleep than the nursery routine could give her. Simply getting up that early in the morning, I felt, was contributing to her illness. Um, And you know, well, any any mums or dads listening to this, um, you know when you have that instinct and you know that you're right, (laughs) and The mindfulness course allowed me to tune into it, amongst other things. So the decision actually became a pretty easy one, even though it was very painful. So with a lot of pain in my heart and a lot of insecurity in the pit of my stomach, I made that decision and I handed in my notice and left that locum job. So this left me setting up a private practice, feeling like a bad person feeling like I didn't want any of my NHS colleagues to know that I'd gone to the dark side and was going to be doing this very dirty, filthy, awful thing. (laughs) Um, And also really unsure how I was going to make this private practice into something that hit my values. I think one way in which I was possibly quite fortunate is I never lost this sense that I would do that though. I think I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, I've always quite liked the idea of being my own boss, and I definitely have this kind of creative edge to my personality. So although I was really anxious about how I was going to do it, I knew that I was going to do it. And that is probably why I made the decision from then to invest in business courses and get getting coaching fairly early on. So I really didn't have any money, (laughs) I should say. Um, So, you know, going from maternity leave into a local role where you're never there, So I didn't get paid because I wasn't there Um, and having to pay London rates for childcare meant there really wasn't much sitting in my bank account to help me set up my practice which is another reason that when I set up psychology business school, it was really important to me to have an installment plan, because although I've been told by a million people that that doesn't make business sense, um, I still feel like I need to do it, because I know that I couldn't have paid the full ticket price when I started out, and that's why psychology business school will always have an installment plan. Um, Because I, I did two things when I was at this sort of crossroads and feeling really, really lost, I managed to get myself on a free programme which was available to military spouses called Supporting the Unsung Hero. And yes, we are unsung heroes. <laughs> I love that term. Um, but th- this is a course specifically offered by, I think it was Lloyds Bank, and... Um, for military partners who are being kind of thrust into self-employment because basically we can't we often can't hold down jobs because of the lifestyle um so that was a really positive thing that was accessible to me but what i've discovered since then is that actually there's a lot of free business courses out there that are run by the banks by other big institutions that you might be able to get support from especially if you have a mental health mission so check out stuff like the school for social entrepreneurs they've got a startup program which is just super valuable and gives you lots of information about basic business setup Um, And also, you know, check out your bank and see if they're running anything near you. So I know NatWest run them. I believe Lloyd's do. Um, So definitely worth checking out those opportunities because they're not going to give you specific, tailored, um, independent practice advice in the way that something like Psychology Business School does. (laughs) Plug, uh, for example. Um, But what they can do is give you those, those really basic foundations like, This is a business bank account. This is what you do with tax. Those kind of things, which are just generic to all businesses, but I had no clue about. So I got myself on one of those, and I also knew that because I move a lot, um, and because you know I didn't have much of a network in the area that we were living. It wasn't like I hadn't worked in that area before, so I didn't have loads of professional connections around me. um, Didn't have things in place. Uh, to get referrals into a private practice, then I knew that I was going to have to get quite good at marketing quite quickly. So the other thing I invested in was a, a an instalment plan for Janet Murray's uh, online marketing course, because I knew early on that I was going to have to do some work online. I knew that was probably going to be harder for marketing purposes, but I knew that that was going to you know work better in the context that I might be moving anytime in the next kind of six months or year and had no idea when. (laughs) Um, so I made that decision and it was a really, really good one because being around other people who were also petrified, who also felt that they had no, no business knowledge, that that they were in completely the wrong arena, that they didn't know what they were doing. (laughs) Um, it just showed me that that imposter syndrome is universal, and that eventually, if I was determined enough, I would overcome it, and that I would get more confident and I would get the business um, working. So that's a little bit about my journey. I will share the rest, but probably on different podcasts. And you've heard most of it if you've listened to my podcasts about business planning. If you've listened to my podcasts about the importance of networking, how to get your first few clients through the door. then you've probably heard the rest of my story. But that's how I got into independent practice. It was messy. I felt like I was pushed. I didn't jump. Um, And it was with a real mixture of sadness and pain, but also excitement about what I might be able to do for myself, um, or how I might be able to live my values a bit better in independent practice. Now, I'm aware that most people... Um, listening to this and most other psychologists and therapists I know aren't military spouses. Hopefully a lot of you have got better support networks around you than I have. And hopefully that means that a lot of you won't be pushed in quite the same way that I was. And I think that's what leads to a lot of this paralysis that I'm hearing from people considering coming into psychology business school, considering coming into independent practice, but are really struggling to kind of make those decisions So I thought it'd be really helpful to gather some experiences from other psychologists in the UK Psychologists in Private Practice Group. But before we dive into that, I just want to say that my intention in this podcast is to provide you with a sense of community. If you're in a position, maybe a bit like mine, where you're wondering if continuing in your NHS role is right for you, I'm absolutely not suggesting that any one path is better than any other path. The route I've taken has really shown me that we can do incredible things within and outside of the NHS, but I do believe it's important to find a path that allows you to live your personal values. So before we go into people's experiences and thinking about the reasons that people have left the NHS, I just want to talk a bit about the positives of NHS employment and why so many of us stay in it for so long. So firstly, I think the number one for me was the team. So when it works, and even when it isn't quite working, you do get to work alongside some very awesome individuals. So the team is a big one. Secondly, you've got the pension, enough said. Third, you've got the stability. You know what money is coming in at the end of every month. And while that can definitely happen in in independent practice, it takes a little while to get there. Number four it's technically available to everybody. Because it's free at the point of need, technically NHS services are available to everyone who needs them. Now, I think all of us with a bit of experience know that there are groups that really struggle to access NHS services. And so I felt a bit funny about owning that one, um, because I'm not sure it's entirely true. But that's the idea, at least. That's the ethos that the NHS is working towards, which is one that we can all get behind, I'm sure. And that's why you can have a greater diversity of clients. Again, technically, (laughs) I think most of us will have found that certain services are used more by one community than another. um, And there's often not as much diversity as you would expect. But you probably do get more diversity of clients than you do in your standard independent practice. There are potential opportunities for service development. I was involved in service development as a trainee. I was involved in service development as a qualified psychologist, and that's something I really valued and enjoyed in the NHS. There are potential opportunities for research, I believe. (laughs) Not that I ever met anybody who had the ability to do any research in their role. Uh, I know there are people that do and you would have the resources of the NHS to help you with that when uh, when that opportunity did arise for you and that was something I very much hoped for in my career and if I ever go back into the NHS, which I might, um, then that's something I'd be looking for for sure. And finally, there is at least perceived authority about being an NHS health professional there's some status attached to it either in our own minds or sometimes in the minds of clients as well I've definitely heard from clients that I see in independent practice that they're reassured by the fact that I was NHS trained um, and I think I would be if I was looking for a private health care of any sort I'd want to know that they were also working in the NHS So I think that's a bonus to it. So knowing all of that, knowing all of those positive sides, getting in touch with those and thinking about what you do value about working in the NHS is just as important about thinking, um, it's just as important as thinking about your reasons for potentially leaving or stepping back from your NHS role. So now we've done that, now we're going to take a look at some of the most common reasons that people have given for leaving the NHS or reducing their hours. And wow, people wanted to talk about this subject. So I got 47 responses on the thread and I had more people than that talking to me in my direct messages. So my original plan had been for this podcast that I would just read out people's responses but clearly I'm not going to be able to read out 47. (laughs) Um, But there were some really big themes that started to emerge from the responses that people gave. So I'd like to speak to some of those and I'll give some direct quotes from people as well. So one theme that emerged was health, trauma and burnout. And as we all know, there's a huge relationship between those three things. So I want to read a little bit about um, Elizabeth's experience. So Elizabeth shared that she felt that the management styles that she was being forced to work with were causing her burnout, that there were really high expectations of her caseload, that she was dealing with an awful lot of risk because there were less therapists than they needed in her service and that they were really understaffed. And that she chose to go into private practice to be able to deliver therapy in the way that she wanted to and to attempt. A work life balance. Um, Although she admits she's still getting that wrong at times. (laughs) Yeah, difficulties with work life balance definitely don't go away in independent practice, but we do have more control. And when we realise that they're not quite how we want them, we can do something about it. Whereas a key theme that came out of people's comments about why they felt they needed to leave the NHS was that they had brought these difficulties to the attention of supervisors and managers and basically been told, well, there's nothing we can do about it. That, that's probably the theme that stands out the most clearly to me, was that people had asked for help and been told that there was nothing that could be done and left alone with that sense of not doing their job in the way that they wanted to because of burnout and also because of systemic problems. So that sense of not being listened to really came through. And independent practice can feel like a real antidote to that because you're in charge. (laughs) So you can make changes when you see that changes need to be made, even though it's certainly not an easy thing to do. So Emma's comments were really interesting as well. So Emma, Emma Russell, commented that she'd hung on for years, feeling like she was teetering on the edge of burnout. Um, For her, there were political reasons. You know, Labour had lost two elections in a row. And she felt that she couldn't see improvements without a change in government and a change of priorities. I think a lot of people will relate to that. Um, she also felt that IAPT wasn't a model that fit with her values. And IAPT was becoming a really dominant uh, model in her sector. So she actually left for four years and really enjoyed working in the third sector, which is something we, we should talk about a lot more. That There are lots of ways of working. You can work for a charity, you can work um, in an independent service where you might receive grant funding, um, and you can work in a straightforward private practice. So, but Emma actually is going to go back into the NHS in a more senior role. Um, in HIV which is something she's really passionate about so this is really exciting and also something I really wanted to draw to attention that just because you go into independent practice doesn't mean that you'll never go back into the NHS. I actually hope that there's a time in my life where I've got enough stability that I can go back into the NHS. I doubt I'm ever going to go back in full time because I do sort of love being my own boss (laughs) and I do love the innovation of being independent and I, I love the fact that I can kind of create the service that I want to see however if there was a, a role that came up in the NHS that would allow me to work in another slightly different way maybe you know have a role in shaping a service I'd be really excited to do that at some point in the future so I love that Emma shared that um, and I wish you loads of luck Emma in your new job and do keep in touch and let us know how you get on Lots of people have been talking about values. You've heard me talk about values. Emma's touched on values. Elizabeth talked about values as well. Um, Lisa shared that she resigned after 17 years because the pandemic gave her an opportunity to consider her values. Um, And it's been, she says, liberating and energizing to be able to hang on to that clarity and allow it to guide her decisions, despite the presence of competing demands and influences. And I think that's really important. A lot of people in their responses talked about the tension between their values as a parent and their values um, as a psychologist or therapist. And, you know that's something that I can really relate to you've heard that that was a major tension for me that I couldn't really parent in the way that I wanted to with the demands of the job and I couldn't really do the job in the way that I wanted to with the demands of parenting so I think that's really interesting and I wonder if there's potential post-pandemic for the NHS to have maybe a bit more flexibility around how it supports working parents um sadly a few people have commented to say that post-pandemic they asked whether they could maybe do some more work from home and continue some online working and the answer has been no. And I'm not surprised because another key theme that has come out of other people's answers and I also noticed in my experience that there is a bit of reluctance towards innovation in a lot of services in the NHS, not all, and I know that there are specific programmes in the NHS that aim to develop innovation and entrepreneurship within NHS services however most people's lived experience of working within mental health services seems to be that if you you need to ask for something that doesn't quite fit the trodden path maybe you want to work work online for example there seems to be real anxiety in the system about making that happen um, and real bureaucratic barriers to be honest and people have faced those come up against them and sadly just had to make the decision to leave because they couldn't um, make a role fit around their caring commitments or their child care commitments um, so I can't count actually the number of people that mentioned something along those lines it seems to be a really big problem um, a lot of people saying that it wasn't clinical work as such but it was more systemic issues. So Claire shared that after 14 years, she was feeling burnt out, but not by the clinical work, but by the politics. So her service was restructured after being taken over by another trust. I think a lot of us have had those experiences. Um, unfortunately, that other trust, who won the bid, then decided that that service wasn't making them the money that they wanted, so they then gave up the contract. The impact of that on the staff was really significant and Claire said it exacerbated underlying team struggles which made it a really difficult work environment and I think many of us will recognise that problem. Um, I never had that specific experience but I did work in a team where the the management changed really frequently due to probably political things going on above my head that I simply don't understand Um, but the management changed a lot and it really leaves the team feeling like they don't have a rudder like they don't have team values to work towards and I think when that happens when shared values uh, go out of the window then it's really difficult to then cope with the, the demanding work that is that is placed on every mental health service so I'm not surprised that quite a few people have mentioned similar problems to Claire where It it just felt like the service was restructured and restructured to the point that, you know, team dynamics became a real problem. One thing that was really interesting for me is how many people mentioned that big changes happened while they were on maternity leave. I wonder, I don't know, I don't know, but I wonder if sometimes when a psychologist goes on maternity leave and maybe that gap isn't filled some changes happen that we really wouldn't be very happy with um, because quite a few people have shared that while they were on maternity leave their service drastically changed and they just didn't feel that they could go back to it. So Gemma, Gemma Gate has an interesting story. She says that for her, the main push was funding being pulled from the specialist LAC service that she led. Um, For anybody outside of the UK who might not recognise that terminology, LAC is looked after children service. So it's a specialist team that works with adoption and fostering. Um, So she was leading that service and the funding was pulled when she was on her first maternity leave. She was then offered a return to a generic child and adolescent mental health service role, but she knew that wasn't really her passion. So without that service, there was a huge gap um, in provision locally, and she decided to fill that by going into private practice full time. And she'd been doing some private adoption work before that, which gave her a little bit of confidence to leave. She also mentioned that she had experienced burnout earlier in, in her career, so she knew what that was like. And she also felt very frustrated by the focus in the system on diagnostic categories and disregarding experiences, legitimate anger, attachment, developmental trauma as not mental health related. And when I saw that comment from Gemma, I just thought, yes, yes, this is an absolutely huge problem. Um... Not the service I worked in with in Tower Hamlets was still integrated, but in learning disability services, there had been this push to separate out mental health from social care as though somebody's, you know, aggressive behavior um, in a care home, for example, could either be categorised as a mental health issue or as a result of deficiencies in the placement that they were living in. I mean, for goodness sake, that doesn't even make common sense. <laughs> this is my podcast, so I'm I'm gonna be on my soapbox. So Gemma apologised for getting on her soapbox. I'm not apologising for getting on mine. That, that made no sense to me. And I was very happy uh, to get a position in Tower Hamlets because it was still an integrated team, which I really valued. But that was getting harder and harder to come by. Um, And if I'd stayed where I was living before, that wouldn't have been possible because the entire county had separated out their services. Um, And that would have felt like a huge values clash. And I'm seeing that coming through in a lot of of answers here, that um, diagnostic categorization, this idea that mental health is a disease that strikes some people and not other people, and you know is not related to a formulation that involves you know all of the factors that we know are important including social and developmental and all of those things it it just felt and feels for many like a framework within which we cannot be psychologists because psychologists do formulation. <laughs> that's what we do. Um, so we can't go in and be like, I'm going to treat your depression with without thinking about where you live and all of the other kind of social factors impacting on your life because that's not being a psychologist. Um, so I think I, I didn't personally get to this point because I, I didn't get the chance, but I think I would have got to a similar point to Gemma where that would have just pushed me um, into independent practice because what I love about independent practice is everything I do is formulation driven because that's what I do as a psychologist whether I'm working with an organization whether I'm working with an individual the formulation drives everything because that's our secret sauce <laughs> and, um, and that's how I like to work and I think a lot of psychologists um, who have replied to this Posts that I put out in the UK3P group have been saying that it was difficult to work in that formulation driven way, maybe because they didn't get much time to formulate. There are some people who have been forced into seeing so many clients per day that there really wasn't much time to do formulation work um, because it does take time. You can't, can't do all of it in the session, you do have to have some thinking space. Um, but also that it it doesn't always fit with models like IAPT, which can become, not always, I want to put a big caveat on that, but they can become quite diagnosis led. And that has been a problem for lots of you. Um, And yeah, I get it. It would have definitely been a problem for me. Um, So we had a message from Jo, who handed in her notice today. So congratulations, Jo, that's a big leap. Uh, Well done. Um, on finding the courage to make a decision that felt right for you. So she said that for her it was a few things. She felt like she was always fighting against the tide in a system that pathologizes distress and can re-traumatise people. Um, and she felt like she was unable to give people the, the length of support that they needed and often had to kind of bend the rules to give people what her clinical judgement told told her that she needed. I relate, <laughs> I think many people will relate to that, Joe. That's that yeah, a lot of us were doing that and, ha- and have done that. Um, she also realised at a recent appraisal that she didn't actually want to continue moving up the ladder in the NHS and to spend more time arguing with colleagues and getting embroiled in the bureaucracy. Um, but she's a really ambitious person, so she's excited about being able to be creative in the way that she works and helping lots of people through her independent work. Um, So she's been in the NHS for nearly 15 years and would still have had another 30 to go before she could get her pension. And she just knew that that wasn't the way she wanted to work for that long. So I really like this comment, Jo, because I think it is really exciting. And I think independent practice can feel like a better place for ambition because the route for progression in the NHS for psychologists is... I think a little bit flat, it's fair to say. I was certainly under the impression that I would be working as a band seven for quite a long time. I'd be lucky if I got an 8A. And if I did get an 8 i I'd probably then have a vast amount of responsibility, managing people. Um, and at some point, there might be an 8B, possibly if I wanted to lead a service. Um, And I wanted all of the um, management responsibility that comes with that. So maybe in my life, I expected that I might achieve two promotions, maybe. And, you know, lived experience, anybody who got into those lead positions, their hours were reduced, they were only ever working maximum of three and a half days a week. So you'd never actually earn more money, (laughs) Um, I suppose you might have had time to, to work at a university alongside it, possibly. And I think in the back of my mind, that's where I thought my career might go. But in terms of career progression... for for the driven people that we all are, because you have to be pretty bloody driven to to become a qualified mental health professional, whether you're a clinical psychologist, counselling psychologist, any of the other routes that you might have taken to working in the NHS, you've got to be driven to get there because it's not easy, requires huge emotional and personal investment. So all these driven people are then told, okay, there's this very limited route, it will take you out of your clinical specialism, and you'll end up managing people, and being in lots and lots of meetings that seem really, really stressful. Um, I can see why that doesn't look brilliantly appealing. <laughs> and I do think, again, this didn't happen to me, I, I just wasn't in for long enough. But I think if I had been in for another five years, I would have probably started to feel that way too, and started to, to crave being able to create some progression for myself and find that in, in other places. So I think progression has to be a key theme that we pull out of this too. Where is the progression in the NHS or in other employed jobs? And you know, maybe if there are any service leads listening to this who are worried about their retention, then thinking about how that could be offered to people I think would be really good. Another key theme that has has come out from a lot of these answers was CPD and that they were seen as troublemakers. Lots of people saying in in different words that when they asked for continuing professional development, they wanted to go on courses, become more specialized in certain areas, develop skills like EMDR, for example, that a lot of us use in the independent sector. They were basically told that they were asking for too much and that they were causing trouble. So... There's a million problems with that, really, isn't there? <laughs> um, but I can see why that would become really frustrating over time, um, and contributes to burnout actually because. CPD can be really enriching for a number of reasons I think whenever I go on a CPD course it gives me a bit of a confidence boost it gets me in touch with other professionals that share my passion as well as teaching me a new skill so it's not just about what I bring back in terms of a new technique or something new that I can bring to the team or to my independent practice it's also about the the perspective that it gives me on my work and I think it's really sad that that isn't seemingly valued in some of the NHS services that people have been talking about on this thread. Um, Yvonne shared a really shocking story actually and I'm so glad that you shared this Yvonne because I doubt that it's a unique experience but I think people don't speak up about it enough but there was a service transformation in Yvonne's service which meant that they were switching to agile working you can't see my air um, <laughs> my, um, you can't see my air quotation marks but they're there agile working from a hub um, and that hub had next to no parking and Yvonne's a wheelchair user so that really wasn't going to suit her needs very well she needs reliable parking options luckily for Yvonne her private practice was going really well and she was getting busy so she felt she could make that transition quite easily but it really shouldn't have to be that way It makes me really sad that people are being pushed into independent practice by a lack of, I guess, reasonable adjustment, but also just a lack of consideration of staff needs. Obviously, people with disabilities need reliable parking, but so do solo parents. When you're the the only person who, you know, or a carer even, there's so many circumstances under which you need quick access to transport, aren't there? but I know that that was actually a really big problem for me too in the locum job that I was in um I didn't have reliable parking and you know I needed to be able to leave quickly um for emergencies for my daughter and that that was a big stress and a big pressure and yeah for for somebody like Yvonne there, there just was no choice in the matter and that's not right that's really not right um, and again, when we're setting up independent services, these are things we have the flexibility to think about. I, I didn't. When I set up my private practice, I forgot to think about stuff like parking. Um, but as soon as I realised this, this was making it inaccessible for clients and any future employees that I might have wanted to take on, I changed it. And you have the flexibility to do that. And I love the fact that we can set up our practices with policies and um values at their core that mean that we won't do this to people we won't do this to clients and we won't do this to the people that we work with either as we expand and get bigger and um, so I also want to make the point that lots of people were saying that they really loved their work in the NHS and that they didn't want to leave and felt pushed I don't want this podcast to come across as though I'm saying NHS is bad independent practice is good I don't think that I think if you can work in the nhs in a way that hits your values it's a brilliant place to work for lots of reasons you get a great pension a great like often you get great relationships relationships with your team you get to work with a great cross-section of society there's loads of reasons and i know i don't really need to say them um to any of our uk listeners i know i don't really need to say them because we all already feel pretty positive about the nhs as a whole but I really wanted to highlight today that there are lots of reasons, good reasons, that people have made the decision that they need to do some independent work or they need to leave altogether. And these are things which a lot of us feel we sh- we shouldn't have had to make decisions based on these factors, but we have. And I want to make the point to any of you kind of teetering on the edge of this decision, that it can be really, really positive and um marianne marianne trent um who's coming on the podcast actually um will be recording tomorrow so it'll probably come out in a few weeks but marianne was saying she just wanted to do her own stuff she went independent not because of any of these pressures that we've talked about but because she didn't want to have to ask for permission to do the cool and innovative things that she does in her practice and she's making an amazing success of that um so there's a real kind of mix there there are people that left because they wanted to follow their passion. There are people that left because they felt pushed. Um, and there are people who are still doing a mix because a mix is what brings them the most fulfillment and lets them, to live, lets them live their values. So I think that's really important to reflect on. Um, okay, so I want to reflect now on the key themes, the key takeaways, if you like, that I got from, from reading all of these responses. And to me, it seems that there are five key areas that people consider and you might want to consider when you're making a decision about whether to remain in the NHS, cut down on your hours, change employer, or maybe pursue an entirely independent route. And the first is health, mental and physical health. Lots of people talking about you know, burnout, maybe physical health of, of their physical health or the physical health of family members, um, dictating their decision about whether to stay employed or whether to go independent. A lot of people also talking sadly about their own mental health and a lack of support in services for employee mental health and feeling that they could take charge of that a bit better if they went independent. So health seems to be a really important factor to consider. Secondly people were thinking about their values. Who do you want to be in your life Who do you want to be in your professional life? What kind of psychologist or therapist do you want to be? And who do you want to be in your personal life? What do you want to give to your family? What do you want to give to your friends? What do you want to give to your social life? And what kind of a role or what kind of a mix of roles might allow you to live those values best? The third thing that I would urge people to consider, and it seems like people have been considering when they've been making that decision, is what difference you want to make in the world, your vision, you know, what impact are you hoping to make? Is there a book in you? (laughs) Is there an online course that you want to put out there? How, you know, what, what would make you feel like you'd made your stamp um, on the world in the way that you want to do it? Which brings me on to considering your mission. How can you best do that? Like I said, lots of people find that the most fulfilling route for them is a mix. Lots of people find that that's great fulfillment within the NHS and that they've got that vision of what they can achieve within that organization. Other people, like myself, like Marianne, um, like a few other people that shared their stories with me, feel that there's something in independent practice they can do that they couldn't do within the confines of a larger bureaucratic organisation. And they just want that freedom to be able to innovate and, and do things in, in the way that they know is best for them. And then finally, progression. I think that was a key theme that came out. Do you feel like you can progress and grow as a person and as a professional within the organisation you're in, or do you feel like you need to do things a bit differently in order to achieve that growth? So, like I said, for me, all of the other factors came into play before this one really hit me. I wasn't feeling a lack of progression when I left the NHS because. I hadn't hit up against that ceiling yet but I think five years down the line I probably would have and I'd probably have felt a bit like Marianne like I've got to get out and do my own thing um, because that's how my brain works (laughs) I think Um, but again that'll be different for everybody some people will be really well suited and will do an amazing job of those management roles within the NHS. Other people might see that their progression looks a bit different to that. But one thing which I think should be addressed and could be addressed within our profession as a whole, you know, if the ACP or the BPS are listening to this, (laughs) then, you know, psychologists, particularly clinical and counselling psychologists, um, that's the area that I know the best. There is not much progression for us within the NHS and that makes it difficult for driven people to stay for too long. So that's something which leapt out from the responses as something that really needs thinking about. As a final thought, I think adding to the mental and physical aspect of things, there is this kind of separate topic of of burnout and the vicarious trauma that we can struggle with when we're working in very busy, very stretched services. And it seems like that is not being adequately addressed in a lot of NHS services, which is really sad. You know, people have been talking about seeking support from managers, seeking support from colleagues even, and nobody in the system having that capacity to to give them the the support that they needed which is really sad when you think about the wonderful and compassionate people that go into the NHS if they're not able to provide that it's because there's something pretty wrong in the system but the reason that I wanted to bring that up is that for many of for many of us and I hope for lots of you listening to this we're going to build independent practices and services that are bigger than just us And when we do that, we need to have this in mind from the beginning. How are we going to support our staff, whether that's associates? You know, if you listen to the episode with Dr. Melanie Lee about how she works with her associates, that's a team. Asha Patel, she's got loads of um, psychologists working with her as a team. You know, how are we going to, in our independent work, support those teams Um, in a a different way in a better way so that we can always bring our compassionate best to our work and that needs to be baked in to your vision and your values and your mission for your practice right from the beginning in my opinion even when it's just you how are you going to treat yourself well enough to bring your compassionate best to your work so that we don't fall into some of the same traps that we we suffered under or we struggled with while we were in employment Um, So I hope that's a useful final thought to leave you with and I hope that this has given you some kind of structure for your thinking if you are one of those people who's kind of teetering on the edge really unsure about whether to leave the NHS or maybe cut down your hours or whether to go fully wholeheartedly into independent practice. So do let me know your thoughts on this subject. This is something which It doesn't have a a tick box. It doesn't have a clear process that we can work through. It's really, really personal. Uh, But do let me in on your journey and where you're at with it. I'd love to know your thoughts. So you can come and find me over in the Doom Modern Therapy group on Facebook, which literally if you type in Doom Modern Therapy group, you will find us. um um, but also think about coming along to one of our free trainings which we're going to be running over the summer we've got a date in august i believe august 17th we've also got a couple of dates at the beginning of september where we're going to be running totally free training to help you to set up your independent practice so that it thrives and gives you all of the good stuff we've been talking about today allows you to live your values have a clear vision and mission. So we're going to be talking about all the practical steps that you need to take to make that happen in totally free workshops that are happening over the summer. So you can connect with me either via the Facebook group um, or you can have a look at those workshops on our website and I'll link to that in the show notes. Are you stuck in private practice paralysis? We've all been there. Beat the overwhelm, imposter syndrome and insecurity by creating a business plan that gives you confidence. This summer, I'm excited to bring you our free 50-minute training so you can take your first step to a fulfilling, financially rewarding and enjoyable practice. Whether you're looking to start your independent practice in September or you've decided it's time for a major overhaul in the way you run your existing practice, choose your date and book your space on the free training at psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash webinar i'll see you there if you share my passion for doing more than therapy then make sure you come over and join my free do more than therapy facebook community where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.